Hello, pending pals. This is your not host, Ronnie. Uh, we are taking the week off, but in our stead, we are dropping episode one of the new Where They May radio show. Fan fiction is good, actually, hosted by Evan. This episode is very fun and has an amazing guest, but I will let Evan tell you more about that. Uh, see you next week for the continuation of Freaks and Geeks, and take it away, Evan. Hi, everyone. Or no one, I guess. We'll see. Uh, I'm Evan Hodges, and this is Fan Fiction is Good, actually. This is a little passion project of mine that I've been working to get off the ground for a long time, but here we finally are. Uh, like everyone in fandom, I've gone through the cycle of enjoying fanfiction and then dunking on it relentlessly and then coming around to valuing it, if anything, more with hindsight, probably. Uh, I'm a little bored, honestly, of fanfiction being a punchline. I'm very over late-night panels at conventions making fun of it, so I thought I could contribute to the conversation about fanfiction in a positive way by examining all the ways it impacts culture, directly and indirectly. Uh, in this episode, I got to speak with Emma Purinen, who's currently working on her PhD at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. She's examining exoplanets in science fiction. Uh, right now, she's compiling an anthology of short science fiction stories based on research being done at the St. Andrews Center for Exoplanet Science. And if you want to hear more about that, which I certainly do, she is at spacesword13 on Twitter. That's space sword and then the number 13. Uh, don't get me wrong, there will eventually be some very unhinged episodes of this podcast about internet fandom, but Emma has a brilliant and insightful and passionate scholarly perspective on fan works, and I'm really excited to share it. Right. Welcome to Fan Fiction is Good, actually. Um, guest, for the record, can you state your pronouns and what you would prefer to be called, whether that's your actual name or any kind of a screen name you have or some kind of secret identity, anything like that? Yeah, so my name's Emma Purin and I use she, her pronouns. Um, I technically have an AO3. It's for spaces wide, like F-O-R underscore space underscore is underscore wide. But there's like one story on there. So Emma's fine. It's a very cool uh, screen name. It's a good one. It's very evocative. Thanks. It's from an old filk song. So yeah, we're, we're doing a podcast called Fan Fiction is Good, actually. And Emma's my first guest. We don't quite know what we're doing, but we're going to talk about how fan fiction is good, actually. I'm very honored to be the first guest. I'm really, I'm really excited to have you as the first guest because, uh, spoilers, but 
Emma's got some some credentials, some like academic credentials. And much as I want this to be like a fun, weird, comedic, lighthearted podcast, I also have started to dip my toe into like fan community academia. And uh, I'm concerned that I'm hooked. So I'm I'm psyched to have you to pull this convincingly in a little bit more of a academic direction. <laughs> I'll do my best. But yeah, fan studies, it's a real field in academia. It really exists. It's super cool that it does. Most, um, it's funny, you talk to like literature majors, and I think a lot of them kind of write fanfic on the side, but are like, Sometimes there's this weird stigma about bringing it up in an academic sense, but they're always really excited when they find out that fan studies is a thing that exists. Yeah, I I studied marketing in college, so uh, I, I did not dip into fan studies at all. But it seems to me like it there's becoming less of a social stigma around talking about fan fiction and fan communities in academic spaces which is as it should be, in my opinion, because people taking other people's work and reimagining it or reinventing it has always been a part of creating media. Yeah, it's it's still like it's the kind of thing where sometimes you have to sort of suss out the professor and see if they're going to be cool about it. Uh, it's like I took a creative writing uh, seminar in undergrad and I'd heard that one of the professors who ran it um, really likes genre work and the other one doesn't. So like I made sure to take it the semester that the person who is cool with, with genre work uh, was running it. But yeah, so a bit about me. I'm not technically a fan studies scholar, but there was a fan culture class um, available at my undergrad. So I took it in my undergrad and now I am um, getting a PhD, sort of an interdisciplinary PhD in science fiction is the quickest way to say it. Um, it's sort of split between the astronomy folks and the um, modern languages and literatures folks. So it's in how exoplanets, which are planets outside our own solar system, are portrayed in science fiction works. So sometimes that crosses over with fan studies. That is the coolest major I've literally ever heard of. I know. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. Why didn't I ever think to do something that cool when I was in college? I can't believe that like I'm here doing this. It's insane. When I was, I, I won't get into this because this is not what the podcast is about. But when I was looking for PhDs, you can talk about whatever you want. Please don't <laughs> don't feel constrained by the format. Please please share any cool stuff about your your incredible major that you have landed in. <laughs> well, that's what uh, fan fiction's all about, right? Not being constrained by the format, going outside the bounds. So I guess it fits. Um, yeah, no, I just never imagined that I'd be able to do an interdisciplinary PhD. I've always considered myself like, I love academia, but I don't want to just do a deep dive into one tiny subject area. I kind of like all of it. So I, finding a way to bridge astronomy and literature, dream come true. Yeah, that's deeply, deeply cool. I, every now and then when I'm dealing with something really frustrating at work, I uh, think about like just dramatically changing my career and like becoming an archaeologist or a paleontologist. This is something that's always like been fascinating to me in an abstract, unattainable way. So I feel like you're living a dream that so many of us like wish we had where we could just dedicate our whole lives to something that we're deeply passionate about. 
Yeah. And that's what a PhD is, is like you're doing, you're doing four years of work in something that like you really have the time to dig in and, and learn as much about as possible. Cause that's your job. It's really cool. Uh, so obviously you're very serious about science fiction. <laughs> what does your like fan journey in science fiction look like? I would bet money that Star Trek is in there somewhere. Yeah, you read my mind. <laughs> um, so in elementary school, I was a fantasy nerd. I, I just, I read tons of books. I was like too little to really be on the internet very much. And I didn't really know anything about what I would call proper fandoms. But then in middle school, um, my middle school let out really early for some reason. So I was always home by like 2, 2.30. This was an hour and a half before anybody else was home. And so I would sit in the basement and watch Star Trek. I watched the entire original series Star Trek when I was like 13 or 14 and found some forums and found fanfiction.net. And that's like really my first foray into fandom proper was was Star Trek. But Anytime someone says fanfiction.net, it's like smelling something that like like triggers a memory and I like see mm-hmm. the font and the color scheme and the layout and anyway, carry on. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. This is uh yeah, with so that's something that I learned when I took that fan culture class is that um these like it, it internet cultures move so quickly and of course fan um fan fiction did not start on the internet, but Fan studies as a field is always several years behind because it takes a while to do academic research into stuff. So like when I took this college course in 2016, we were reading papers about like the live journal days, which I never experienced. Um, and I got into it during the fanfiction.net days, which this was around 2010, uh, just for context, because a lot of this is, is like very dated to what age you were at a certain time. I'm 25 now. Um, and now everything's AO3. And honestly, it took me a while to like learn what AO3 was and get properly caught up because my introduction was in the fanfiction.net days. Same. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 30 in case anyone listening is wondering. So I and but I discovered like online fan communities kind of late uh, because I didn't have internet as a child. Uh, I lived out in the middle of nowhere and we, we just did not have internet at the house. Uh, my mom's house where I was Wednesdays and every other weekend, uh, she did have a computer, but it was like a computer in a computer room, which is a thing that people had in their houses in the early 2000s. You had a room with a computer in it, and it was just one computer that the whole family used. Um, and it wasn't called the office. It was the computer room. Yes. I, I don't know why. I don't know why that became a thing, but nobody called it the office. They called it the computer room. Anyway, um, hmm. Yeah, so my <laughs> my first experience of any sort reading fanfiction was actually on Quizilla. Ooh. Have you have you heard of Quizilla? Do you know what this is? Um, you should probably I'm guessing a quiz website and I probably have been there, but you should probably go more into detail. Yeah, so it was it was a quiz website and it had a lot of like fandom specific quizzes on it you know like which buffy character are you it was it was all like user generated everyone would go on there and like make some kind of dumb little like which harry potter house are you which uh you know interview with the vampire character are you and so it was formatted in such a way where it was already kind of divided by fandom because you could search base you know 
for like Buffy quizzes or whatever. And for some reason, and I assume this was just incompetent web design, uh, there were either no limits or very, very loose limits on like how much text you could put in the question field. And so I don't know exactly when it started, but at some point people started putting fan fiction in the question field and then would make the answer fields just like continue yes no and then it would just take you to the next quote unquote question and people were getting like entire chapters worth of a fan fiction into like the text box on the quiz and then just putting the next chapter in the next question on the quiz oh wow yeah i don't I don't know the exact strange confluence of circumstances that led to people putting fanfiction on Quizilla, but it was like this perfect storm of it like already being organized by popular fan media and then this like shitty design that let you do whatever you wanted in the question field. I seem to vaguely remember there being just enough like form logic inherent in the quizzes that you could sort of do a choose-your-own-adventure thing. Not That's much. what I was going to ask, yeah. if this was like a choose-your-own-adventure game, or did people mostly just kind of steer you in the direction they wanted you to go? I think it was very, very limited. Uh, I think, again, this was, like, years ago. I was, I think, 14 or 15 when I discovered fanfiction on Quizilla. Yeah, there, there, there were a lot of, like, first-person... Or, I'm sorry, second-person fanfiction. So it was like... You do this, and then you do that. Continue? Yes, no. Or, like, do you do this? Or uh, There was definitely some kind of form logic where you could do a very limited choose-your-own-adventure thing, but you could only arrive at, like, a handful of different conclusions, and you couldn't, like, fully, like, customize a path to take through because it was just each individual question would, like, trigger one additional thing. So it was very limited, but this was, uh, by the time I was using it, there were more fan fictions than actual quizzes. So I discovered <laughs> it because somebody sent me a, a like, which Yu Yu Hakusho character quit are you quiz. And in the Yu Yu Hakusho quizzes section of Quizilla, there was a ton of Yu Yu Hakusho fan fiction. And that was the first fan fiction I encountered on the internet. Oh my gosh. When you said quizzes, um, choose your own adventure is not where I immediately went. I immediately was remembering those like um, reader X character insert things. Mm -hmm. Like I was imagining like doing a quiz and then you get like, um, you know, it, it, it it gives you one of the characters and yeah, it's one of those like Y slash N your name. <laughs> <laughs> there was extremely that on Quizilla. There were a lot. I very distinctly remember reading a lot of like reader X character. And there, there was one I remember reading where it was like reader X character. And the like final like reveal at the end was like, which character you had been in these situations with this whole time it was like a like an like a mystery date kind of situation where you had this like anonymous admirer who, and you were doing this like romance story with them throughout the quiz and then at the very end it was like revealed which character you had been i, I don't think you actually banged them in the that was another that was another thing is there was like not moderation on these things, or at least not mm -hmm. competent moderation. 
So there was sex stuff in there. There there was definitely sexual, like, adult fanfiction on Quizilla at the time. Um, like, unmarked. Yeah. Um, well, I think people kind of did that thing that uh, we have tags and official systems for now, but they kind of did that thing to be courteous where they would, like, put at the beginning, like, what it contained. But there's also there was also a secret lingo at the time. Do you remember, like... Lemons. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all, it's not the sort of thing that you would necessarily understand if you were brand new to fan fiction, but I think there was a kind of like a level of self-moderation, not nearly what it is now, but there, there was some consideration given to like, oh, we should probably let people know that there's sex stuff in here. And then after that, uh, I, I graduated to fanfiction.net and then, and I was, by the time I graduated to fanfiction.net, I was, like, writing my own fanfiction. And then AO- AO3 came along much, much later, but all of my current stuff is on AO3. There's many things I have long since abandoned on fanfiction.net. I don't know if they're up anymore. I heard there was some kind of major purge of the website quite a mm. few years ago, and, like, a bunch of stuff got removed. I-, I-, I don't know. I haven't checked. It, it would be... It would do too much psychic damage to go back and, like, look at all of that. (laughs) Honestly, yeah. I went and found my old fanfiction.net account before this, which I will not be sharing the name of. Um, (laughs) It it still exists. It is still there. It's not the username I currently go by anywhere. But, um, yeah, I remember... Well, the Quizilla stuff is really interesting because I wonder if that's all still up because obviously, you know, archive is in the acronym AO3, um, but that Quizilla stuff wouldn't be very well archived. Fanfiction.net at least like still exists, but now we have this whole big fancy archive with the tagging system. And I was talking with someone the other day who's doing a PhD in... um, in archival fan community. She's basically doing oh, wow. a PhD in AO3, oh, which wow. is really insane. Yeah. I gotta get her on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I can I could definitely um I could definitely reach out to her and see if she'd be interested. I'm sure yeah, if you want someone who's actually doing their PhD in fan studies, which I'm not technically doing. Keep that in the back of your mind somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. The lemon thing is making me think though about how like um in, in the olden days, especially like writing fan fiction, especially fan fiction that had anything to do with um, queer stuff or like sexually explicit stuff was just not, you know, it was, it was it could damage your reputation. It was done in secret. It was not a thing people talked about. They kind of passed it um, like <laughs> passed the zines around a bit like contraband um, for various reasons. Um, and the lemon almost feels like this is a connection I'm just now making, but that almost feels like a still like, you know, this is a secret word that the people who aren't in the know aren't going to understand, but we're going to use it. But the fact that that's not really used anymore says it's much more, you know, okay to be writing about all this stuff so long as you tag it properly on AO3. Like there's still definitely fan fiction related lingo that people in the know wouldn't know, but it's not like to hide the fact that this is sexually explicit anymore, which is interesting. Yeah, it's, um, there's still a lot of, you're right, there's still a lot of terminology that people wouldn't necessarily understand. Like, I feel like the word drabble is used a lot. I feel like, Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't necessarily know what, like, hurt slash comfort is without having understood that in context before. Or, like, Uh, head cannons or... Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, it's almost a given now that 
at least a significant portion of it is sexually explicit. I don't know if that's true, but that's certainly the perception I've had of it for a long time, and I don't think people are, like, shy about admitting that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's good in a lot of respects, because, of course, like, a lot of people sort of explore their identity and their sexuality and their preferences and things like that first through reading fan fiction and writing fan fiction, and so... I genuinely think it's good that there is sexually explicit fan fiction out there for that reason, for this sort of, like, personal experimentation thing. And then also, mm-hmm. of course, pe- people who are interested in sexual content should have access to that if they want to. People who don't want to see it shouldn't have to see it, obviously, but there's definitely a more accepting air about fan communities, at least nowadays, when it comes to, like, sexually explicit material that would not have been, that would not have flown in mainstream media pretty much at any point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, gosh, so I recently, um, with with this person who's doing the PhD in Archive of Our Own, um, we sort of jointly gave a lecture to my advisor's class on the literary canon. So the class is about the literary canon, but we had a, there there was sort of a day about uh, fan culture and how fans use the word canon, which is like closer to the biblical sense of the canon. Mm -hmm. And um, wow, I'm forgetting where I was going with what I was about to say. (laughs) I've heard that before. I've, I've heard somebody point out that, so of course, biblical canon, when people say biblical canon, what people who believe in uh, the Bible as written mean when they say biblical canon is that what is in it was divinely inspired. And so it's even if uh, there's like historical record about the same people that exist in the Bible, that's not canon. The part that's canon is the part that's been divinely inspired by the creator I don't. It's the authoritative scripture, and it's it's closed. Uh, like it's open. You you can interpret it, but you can't change the canon. Yeah. So I am less familiar with what literary canon means. I was raised Catholic. I don't know if you can. Pr- you can probably <laughs> tell by reading my fan fiction and like seeing the kind of vague religious trauma that always comes up in it. So I know <laughs> what like scriptural canon means and what it entails. So mm-hmm. like. When you say literary canon, like, what's the difference exactly? Yeah, so the, there are well, there are a whole bunch of different literary canons. Literary canons are pretty much what you need, what you quote unquote need to read to be like well versed in an area. So like, there's this concept of the Western canon, and that might include things like uh, Shakespeare, and then also like uh, Don Quixote, and then a whole bunch of other books that would be like uh, to to know the Western literary tradition, you need to read these. And the thing about that is it's not necessarily closed the same way um, like biblical canon would be because there there's like a canon formation process of like uh, people who are in academia sort of deciding what texts they're going to teach in their classes. And that can change over time and things can come and go from the canon. And there's lots of talk about diversifying the canon and making it not a whole bunch of old white men books. Um, I was just but, about to say the academics get together and decide if you're old enough and white enough, you get to be in the canon now. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's why there, there are a lot of people who just kind of want to do away with the idea of a canon. Like, why should you need to read like X number of books in order to be like, you know, just just kind of read what you want and interpret what you want. Um, but it's it's a categorization system. I kind of think all categorization systems are flawed in some way. But um, fans use the term canon much closer to the biblical one, because for a, a fan, the canon is what happens in their text, be that the book or the TV show or the movie. And I found what I was going to say earlier, um, <laughs> which was about about um, sexually explicit fan fiction um, and just how I feel like creators these days are like they, they just kind of accept that fan fiction is going to happen. Whereas in like the 80s, and I can read from this because I found the PowerPoint, um, there was this letter I love that you from. You have a PowerPoint, can I just say? Yeah, because <laughs> I gave a presentation on this. <laughs> There's this letter from Lucasfilm to uh, Star Wars fans in 1981. And oh, wow. let's see. Lucasfilm Limited does own all rights to the Star Wars characters, and we are going to insist upon no pornography. This may mean no fanzines if that measure is what is necessary to stop the few from darkening the reputation our company is so proud of. Since all of the Star Wars saga is PG rated, any story those publishers print should also be PG. Lucasfilm does not produce any X-rated Star Wars episodes, so why should we be placed in a light where people think we do? You don't own these characters and can't publish anything about them without permission. Oh no, the horny police are here. Exactly. <laughs> that, that is why people would like hide in their living rooms with their typewriters and, and write their, their X-rated fanfiction that way, because... Like cease and desist letters like this were much more common back then, and I feel like creators of I, I don't know to what extent it really is them being cool with it versus to what extent it's just impossible to actually look out for all this stuff. But it's changed. Yeah, I I experienced a portion of the transitional period when online fan communities were still relatively new, and of course. Uh, I'm sure you remember this also, There, that everyone would put these extremely not legally binding disclaimers at the beginning of fan fiction, like, I don't own any of these characters, please don't sue me, emoji, mm -hmm. uh, th I, this is a- I googled the word disclaimer for that. Yeah. I had never heard of the word disclaimer, I, I was so worried that somebody was like gonna come after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're definitely breaking the law by reading fan fiction on the internet, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, I. Anyway, my my point was that uh, I do think that it was less uh, the IP owners being okay with it, and more the fact that it became impossible to stop once this was like universally accessible via the internet, um, because there were still instances of creators like trying to stop fan fiction. I remember uh, Anne Rice, even into the modern era, was like she's kind of famously one of the last holdouts of like anti-fan fiction, like publicly anti-fan fiction I'm gonna say content produced. She's a writer but there's uh, mm -hmm. movies and other other media based on her work as well. So that of course comes into the, the fan fiction writing uh, sphere also. But Anne Rice was very, very opposed to people writing fan fiction for a very long time. I know that she had lawyers who sent 
people on the internet cease and desist letters telling them that they had to take their fan fiction down and telling them that they were going to get sued. And this was like enduring into at least the 2010s. So I really feel like it wasn't so much a uh, like a watershed of widespread acceptance of fan fiction. I think there's probably a lot of authors who still aren't stoked about it, but you you can't like I am Spartacus. Like you can't you can't get everybody. You can't stop it. It's everywhere. So yeah, it's I just I don't understand that mentality. I've never published my own fiction book, of course, but I would be so flattered and honored if anyone was like taking the time to write fan fiction for characters that I had come up with. You know, I agree, and I think that mindset is genuinely like coming to bear now because there are a lot of people, especially younger people, who are transitioning into uh, like a professional writing career who are very pro fan fiction and who will like, I I know that there's some uh, requirements that they have to be careful about, about uh, like not accidentally stealing ideas like showrunners and stuff have remarked that they can't read fan fiction because it can't be perceived that they've stolen someone's idea from a fan fiction, even if Mm -hmm. they didn't, even if they came up with the idea independently, if they happen to have read a fan fiction with the same idea in it, it creates some kind of like, legal conflict of interest or something like that. I I don't know exactly where that falls in like copyright law or whatever, but uh, there are people who are professional media creators who seem genuinely enthusiastic about fan fiction. I think there's a larger portion of them who are just generally silent and ambivalent about it, but the wave is coming of young people who are, who are very pro fan fiction Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a very like mo- the modern creator mindset I've seen is kind of so I've seen it from like Neil Gaiman. I've seen it from um, Jonathan Sims, like some others who have that. Well, Neil Neil Gaiman is very open on Twitter about like, you know, what's in the book is what's out there. I've I've given you that text. What you do with it is what you do with it. All your interpretations are valid kind of thing, which I really appreciate. Um, and then Jonathan Sims would be of, of the Magnus Archives would be. Uh, like an example of somebody who has has said the yeah I won't read it because I don't want to accidentally steal your ideas thing but I'm totally cool with all of it and oh my gosh you're catching me at a weird time because the Magnus Archives ended yesterday and I'm still sad about it. I haven't finished the Magnus Archives I'm somewhere around like episode 100 and I'm very interested in it I haven't had time to like continue listening recently but I remember they did like a fan submission Story, like several fan submission stories. Uh, yeah, the Rusty Fears thing, and then Jonathan Sims reads out your little horror story in in his. Yeah, I thought voice. that was great. <laughs> I thought that was a really cool idea. I I, I do like mm-hmm. think that it, it was a little bit weird because none of it was canon, obviously. So it was a little bit like of an aside from mm-hmm. the regular story, but it was still very neat. It was just great that they were like showing this kind of appreciation and, like, validating their fans in that way. Like, if somebody's enthusiastic enough to sort of, like, write a story in the style of your podcast, like, it it must have been really, really great for those fans to get highlighted in that way. Absolutely. I really feel like everybody at um, Rusty Quill is just a a really good example of, like, healthy fan creator interactions, because there are a lot of creators out there that, like, don't value their fandoms. Very much, especially if they tend to get like, um, there are some properties that end up getting fandoms they didn't Mm -hmm. expect, right? Like typically 
Um, this happened with Supernatural and it didn't end yeah. quite as well, where you get a whole bunch of teenage girls who are fans and creators don't tend to value fans who are teenage girls because the public thinks it's fun to ridicule things that teenage girls mm-hmm. like. Um, and that also sort of happened with the Magnus archives. But this has been more of a success story because they've been more like, you know, this isn't like the fandom we expected, but like, this is awesome. We're going to work with you. And it's been great. Yeah, there's there's so much interesting about the way that fans and creators interact on the internet now. And there have been extremely complicated systems by which fans have influenced creators and creators have influenced the fandom and some of it's very good and some of it's very bad. Like there's probably a whole episode worth of content there, but um, there, I don't know if this is materially true, but it certainly felt like fan reaction was driving some of the decisions made about star Wars in recent years. Mm. Uh, Like the, the fan reaction to things on the internet and star Wars is a very unique fandom. Uh, I don't want to like dunk on star Wars fans or anything like that, but there's certainly a, a healthy group of, Star Wars fans, and then some people who seem to have, like, an adversarial relationship with Star Wars, and it certainly feels to me like a lot of attention was paid to the demands made by certain categories of fans on the internet about what should happen in Star Wars, and while I generally like the ethos that uh, creators are listening to fans more, and creators are uh, supportive of like fan communities and taking fan concerns into account when they're making media. I think there's like another side to that, which is that storytellers should be free to tell a story without it having been decided by committee. Uh, and I think better stories come out of a creator's freedom to do with the story what they want. I'm trying to remember what fandom this was for. There was some kind of situation where a creator said like, oh, I was going to do X, but then everybody on the internet guessed that I was going to do X. So I had to change it. That's, I feel like that's a really Mm. bad attitude to have about how to create media and how to make storytelling decisions. Because the fact that people can see where your story is going and come to a logical conclusion about it isn't a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you, like, failed because you didn't pull an M. Night Shyamalan twist in deceiving the internet committee. Yeah, there's certainly a lot a lot to unpack about how fans and creators are interacting in the era of the internet. And it's such a new thing that I still don't think most people have figured out exactly how to navigate that. And I mean that both in terms of what media creators are doing and in terms of what fans are doing now that they have access to the media creators. So, yeah, I feel like if you change up your story, you're just completely screwing over any foreshadowing you've already laid down. And then you're sort of calling into question because we were saying earlier, lots of creators won't read fan fiction because they don't want to accidentally take the ideas. That would be the creators then very explicitly taking these ideas they got from fans on the internet and changing the story to match what the fans want. And then it becomes more of a collaborative storytelling process, which is interesting. Yeah, or changing it to be specifically not what the fans have already guessed, because then that 
would reflect a failure on behalf of the media creator. I don't, I don't agree, but that seems to be the attitude that some people, and I think it was Game of Thrones. I could be, I could oh be Oh my wrong, gosh. But I Incredible think Incredible how quickly that faded from everyone's consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. I, I could be wrong. I think it was somebody involved in Game of Thrones said that like, oh, well, everyone on the internet guessed what we were going to do. So we had to change what we were going to do. And I was like, no, Why? <laughs> Why? If they, exactly. If they, had, if they had perceived your media in a way that led them to like a conclusion that felt satisfactory to them, why would you then make the conclusion less satisfactory just to like do a gotcha to your fans? That doesn't seem doesn't seem like a healthy interaction that you had there, bud. Yeah, exactly. I've always and sometimes people don't get this, which is fair, but I've I've never had an issue with spoilers actually. I feel like most media I, I consume, I've spoiled myself for, but I don't really care if I can catch the foreshadowing um, just because I've spoiled myself that it's still an interesting story. It doesn't affect my enjoyment of it. I 100% agree. I famously say all the time that like, please spoil me. I don't care. Please, please. Cause like if, if the story is well crafted, then the end is not really what matters. Like the end is a part of it, of course, but I find it, just as fun to anticipate what I already know is going to happen and like discover how we arrive there as I do to like, you know, know the ending or know an important plot point or something. This happened to me with Critical Role. I was very behind on Critical Role for a very long time. I'm caught up now. But uh, there were many things that I learned about through cultural osmosis that actually only made me more excited to get to that point in the story so I could understand the context and like know how that came about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that with Steven Universe. I spoiled myself for the end of season one thing. And I've been kind of looking at Steven Universe for the longest time. Like, I don't like this animation style. Why is everyone so into it? And then I watched one video with the big end of season one spoiler. And I was like, oh, now I have to see how they got there. <laughs> and then I, I was like, basically spent the first two years of undergrad just completely a Steven Universe fan. We, we got, like, on a huge tangent somewhere where you were uh, uh, explaining that you would come home and watch Star Trek after school, <laughs> and I feel like we never completed your, your fandom journey. No. Uh, yeah, what happened after you were in elementary school watching Star Trek because you got home before everybody else? That was middle school. Um, elementary school, I was, oh, like, unaware of the internet and, like, a, a, bl- a blissful child. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then... and I w- Better times, surely. Yeah, and then I was, I was fantasy in elementary school, and then I switched to sci-fi. Um, let's see, my fandom journey. So in high school, I was really into Full Metal Alchemist. That was, like, my mm. big fandom. And I didn't actually write any fan fiction for that one, I don't think, but I uh, did a lot of cosplay. I had, like, a cosplay ask blog, um, so that was fun. And like one of my first cosplays was Ed Elric from Full Metal Alchemist. Hey. It was like my second or third cosplay. I was very, I was very bad at it at the time, so it didn't, it didn't look great. But boy, it was cool. I felt cool. He's such a fun character. Yeah, that that's who I was in the cosplay ask blog, which is really funny because I'm like five ten. But like, it didn't matter when it was just videos of of just like my face um, on the internet. Um, Let's see. So I did that and discovered what cons were. And I got really into going to cons and cosplaying and stuff. Um, And I feel like my experience with fan fiction back then was um, I kind of stopped writing it for a while. I I wrote some for Star 
track in middle school. Then I stopped writing it, but I liked, I liked reading it because I, I liked just the freedom of it. I liked that you could have, um, if I had two shows that I really liked, like Avatar The Last Airbender and Full Metal Alchemist, I could just put those both into the search function and then come up with crossover AU fix and like dig through until I found a good one and then be like, ooh, what would it be like if Aang met Edward Elric? Um, and I, I feel like I was more into it. Sidebar, hmm? what's the weirdest crossover you've ever seen? Uh, oh, no, I can't think of one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, either forget about it or come back to it. Carry on. I'm, I'm just, I'm very interested in crossovers as a, a media phenomenon. Mm-hmm. They're fascinating because then they're, the other one is like the self-insert. And I feel like I've always been really into the self-insert, which um, I still feel like some amount of shame in saying because it is, it is very self-centered. But also like, I, I feel like it's just part of, I, I know this is fan fiction is good, actually. You can't, can't have any yeah, shame or cringe. We don't cringe here. <laughs> we've, we've murdered cringe. And shall cringe no more. Yeah. So, like, I know I said earlier, like, I can't go back to fanfiction.net because it would deal me too much psychic damage, but I would never deliberately take down old fanfiction I had written, even though it's not what I would write now. Somebody got joy out of that. I know they did. So, even though, even though it's not, like, what, it's not for me as I presently am, uh... I am not ashamed of it, and you should not be ashamed of liking self-insert fan fiction. Everyone does. Everyone goes through that at some point, I'm sure, and I will I will put that in stone somewhere. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like, you know, fan fiction in, in a lot of ways exists so that you can see yourself in your media properties better. Um, like, sometimes mm-hmm. if people don't like a... a a character decision or something, they'll they'll make it the way they wanted to see it in their fan fiction. And I feel like self-insert is just another manifestation of that, of people wanting to see themselves in their favorite shows and just have fun with it. Which brings me to college when I discovered live action role play. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, which is how I Everyone met you, has Evan. This phase too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're still in that phase. Yeah, no, it's I, I, I'm so into it. But yeah, so in, in my college, my friend group would do all sorts of like small LARPs and they, they aren't, we didn't really do boffer LARPs. We didn't really do the, the kinds of things with lots of mechanics and hit points and running around in the woods. We did more like, um, we, we, we sort of called them Nordic style. Cause I think that's the only word we knew for it, but it's my gosh, I've been in rooms where people argue about LARP definitions for like an hour and a half. And I don't really want to do that on here. Um, the, the, yeah, no, <laughs> All LARP is good. LARP is good, actually. Yeah. Well, no, so. I don't think they're not saying it's bad. They're just, uh, yeah. again, categorization always has flaws, and they just spend their whole time trying to categorize different types of LARPs yeah. by name. Is this LARP a sandwich? <laughs> is this LARP a sandwich? Yeah. yeah. If I put a piece of bread on the ground, is the earth an open-faced sandwich? Um, <laughs> but... So what we did generally was it could be any genre, but it was like very immersive and character based. And we would have like a world book that we would read and then everyone would get a tail, uh, a tailor made uh, character sheet. We would like fill out Google surveys and then and we still do this. We just do it digitally now uh, because of the world. But <laughs> um, so I would get really into these LARPs and. Um, 
And it got to the point where people would write fan fiction based on our LARPs. So actually, at this point, the vast majority of the fan fiction that I've written is based on LARP characters, which is like a completely different flavor of it because I've physically embodied... That's functionally functionally original fiction is what you're doing now. Yeah, except it's somebody else's work. So this is where like the collaborative and like who's the author question comes. Because if it's... We did this game... um, the longest one I've ever written was like, it was a superhero genre game. Um, and if my friend wrote the entire world and my character sheet, and then I write a novella about my character's life before the game began, but like all the, I don't know, the a lot of the other characters who were involved and my own character's backstory were written by somebody else, like who's the author there, you know? Yeah, I don't think we need to know. <laughs> I think we can just live in this space. Exactly. It's it's really, it's just a very, very interesting question because then people do sometimes, um, like people will sometimes take their LARP characters and they'll write books about it. And then, um, I don't know, I guess you just have a really big acknowledgements section. And then the other thing was this this particular character who I wrote like a novella about, um, their, their mask name, so superheroes were called masks in this world and their mask name was Elixir and they had like this, um, the superpower, the superpower was like wholesale borrowed from this online novel called Worm. There's a character in Worm who has the same exact superpower. It's like you can, if you have contact with another person, you can change their biology. So you can heal them or you can hurt them like just as quickly, which is really terrifying because it's all like touch based and and like this character is like very scared of intimacy intimacy because of that and. It was a really interesting chance to like explore a lot of um, a lot of anxieties that I've always had relating to healing powers. Whenever I see them in fiction, like related to mm. guilt, like why why isn't this character who has healing powers like in a hospital saving people every second? If I had those powers, I would feel guilty every second I wasn't helping people, kind of thing. So I got to explore that with this character, but. Like the, there's the, there's then that extra layer of Elixir's powers are the same as Amy Dallin's in Worm. So again, who's the author here? <laughs> we have uh, we have gone fifteen layers deep in this this world we've created. Now there's fifteen new. It's like an onion. <laughs> exactly. Um, as you mentioned, like we we met through LARP. I didn't get involved in LARP until again much later in life. I arrived at like all aspects of fandom much later in life because there there was not like a comic shop in my hometown. There wasn't a bookstore in my hometown. I had to drive forty five minutes to the nearest Borders Books. I didn't have internet. Borders. So, um, Borders Books. When I was very good, my mom would give me uh, twenty five dollars. And we would make a whole special trip up to the Borders books, and I would do like a, a, a cost-benefit analysis spreadsheet of which books I was going to... Not literally, but like in my brain, I had this this precious tiny amount of money and this one chance every like month or two to go to Borders that was so far away. And so I would agonize for hours about how I was going to spend my $25 that I got for, you know, if I got a good report card or something, I got to go to Borders. So, oh boy, that that defined my childhood. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so I, I arrived at, at LARP much later, but and I have not done quite 
as in-depth as you have, but of course, every time you create a character, you have to you have to create a backstory. You have to create a motivation for them. You have to figure out what makes them tick and how you're going to decide how you're going to make decisions in the space that you're working in. So, I had never thought of that as fan fiction before. I agree with you that it kind of is, though. Uh, even if mm-hmm. even if you're not basing it on some other secondary character, if if you're just playing in a world that somebody else has created, you're functionally making fan fiction. Yeah, this not is your OC. Recognize, yeah. <laughs> this is your self-insert OC. All of LARP is self-insert OCs, <laughs> and you can tell because so many of the people. <laughs> this was true in particular of, of one LARP that I used to attend, but everyone was an orphan. Everyone was born with superpowers. Everyone was like the the best warrior of a generation. And I don't, this is not me criticizing. This is the sort of person that people like want to be and imagine themselves being and like want to explore themselves as. So it was totally unsurprising and extremely uh, predictable, but everyone was having a great time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just another ma- manifestation of wanting to see yourself in the story, and you can in LARP with with your OC. I think there's a that's probably one of the biggest differences between the way that my LARP group runs and the way most LARP groups run is that in my group the writer writes everyone's characters, so you're not coming up with your own mm-hmm. character for the thing. You're like assigned character, but. Uh, you fill out a Google survey with like, I generally like to play these kinds of characters. Here are positive character traits and negative character traits I'd be interested in portraying uh, and a whole bunch of other questions like that. Um, that's that's really interesting. I've never done a LARP with that model. I'm not sure that I would like it because I'm uh, like an extreme introvert. And so I need to be able to play a character that's not that different from me so that I can just like zip out of a situation if I feel like it. Like if I just don't have the emotional stamina to to do some kind of explosive scene or whatever. Uh, I, I, I need to have, you know, that baked into my my character so I can be like, oop, I'm feeling too aloof right now. Bye. Evan's feeling anxious. Bye. Um, yeah. But <laughs> it is uh, a really cool storytelling tool. It's something that I would probably do in like a text RP rather than like an in-person face-to-face LARP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because on the other That's hand, a whole other thing. I feel I would feel anxiety about having to come up with my own character because I'd be like, oh, I can't give myself plot hooks, or do I even fit in this world? You know, I don't know enough enough about the world in order to write something that I feel like would fit. Um, but if the game runner does it, then they can like have this other character secretly be my long lost sister and set me up for a really interesting reunion or something. Uh, I tend to do that with playing tabletop RPGs. Like if, if we're doing a one shot for a weekend or whatever, uh, my friends and I will kind of like come up with character connections. We played monster hearts once. Have you ever played monster hearts? I have not. Uh, so the whole thing about that is you're all in high school. You've all got some kind of, dark it, it's a little bit uh like buffy-esque like everyone's some kind of like supernatural creature like hiding out in this high school but you're all so also all teens and like a ton of the mechanics rely on like emotional and like sexual encounters between 
the characters. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a turn someone on mechanic, and there's a uh, like shut someone down mechanic. So it's all like very very um, catty, and uh, it's 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 not a game that you should play with people who aren't your close friends because it's very easy to like accidentally hurt someone's feelings because it that's what the game is about Mm -hmm. but uh among close friends who like understand each other and who know that this is like sort of an exploration of weird interpersonal emotional conflict like it's fine as long as you're all on the same level uh we we played a, a game of monster hearts and we had all like established beforehand like who was dating who and like what our dark secrets were and how our dark secrets intersected with each other's dark secrets. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And then that's something that people might write fan fiction about too. I've, I've had friends write like really intense fanfic about their D and D campaigns, uh, which is pretty similar to my LARP fic. Although I, t- I tend to do much more LARPing than D and D. I have accidentally gotten really invested in several other p- as if nobody saw this coming, because that's functionally just what Critical Role is. But I have accidentally gotten invested in a lot of people's uh, D&D OCs on the internet, and not even people who do like actual play podcasts or whatever, just people who are really passionate about their D&D characters and will make like fan art of their D&D characters or like post some like snippets of dialogue that their OC did that was really snappy it it's great it's it's great to consume even if i have no idea what's actually going on in their campaign Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's yeah there's i know so much about other people's campaigns from reading their fix it's fascinating but then when you get into stuff like the uh D fanfic or my larp fanfics it's because it is this strange collaborative thing where like every one of your friends has a character in it um I don't know. It's so most fan fiction will have beta readers, but I've run into the thing where like, I'll write something and I'll be like, Hmm, I've written this dialogue. I'm not a hundred percent certain that this is actually how that character would talk. So then I would run it by the player before I post it in like the discord server for that specific LARP and be like, Hey, does does this ring true for what your character would do? Which is, is really fascinating to me. Yeah. Now you're almost cycling back around to text RP. Yeah, exactly. That's well, we've we've had some conversations about that especially as the LARP communities have had to move um to digital spaces about like, you know, when when is when is it LARP and when is it text RP? But the fan fiction stuff is very much text RP. It doesn't have that like live aspect. But yeah, I think that's a situation where categorization is also meaningless because uh even when I was doing in-person LARP, we'd have, like, characters would have correspondence with each other over the internet that we would frame as, like, letters mm-hmm. or whatever. Or we'd uh, just assume, like, we'd assume that that conversation had happened over a campfire between games or whatever. And it was, quote-unquote, canon to our characters. Like, we knew that it had happened. Um, but it, like it was clearly internet text RP that had like woven itself into the LARP. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've in one of the ongoing games I'm in, um, there's like this 
alternate universe that we can't actually visit in game. Everything takes place on Earth. But um, one of my characters, oh, this is complicated. Uh, let's see how succinctly I can explain it. I have two characters. There's the one who lives on Earth, and then there's one who lives in the other world. And occasionally he like body swaps to Earth in my other characters, my Earth and characters body. So um, I have to keep track of like what the people on Terra, that's what the other world is called, are doing and what the people on Earth are doing. So because I have two characters and there are a couple other characters who also body swap between Earth and Terra. So occasionally we'll do like a text RP of what our two Terran characters are doing on Terra right now. But that's just very much a text RP we do on Discord. And we'll even do like the the text like, um, you know, he sits down and takes a heavy sigh or whatever. Um, <laughs> you like the, the flavor text. Yeah, this, this is uh, deeply embarrassing but we we shall not cringe um, no cringe wait, no cringe uh when i was in college uh a friend and i would literally text our like text message role play because uh, we were both very into sherlock mm-hmm. you know everyone everyone who has ever read a fan fiction knows about your bbc sherlock um, Yep. <laughs> Uh, and I was very into that show in college when it was for a period of time uh, capable of convincing me that it was a good show. Uh, and we like I, when I was bored at work, like I would be Sherlock and my friend would be John and we would like text on our phones and like play out a scenario that was like between the lines. You know, I'd, I'd say like, oh, why is this not in the cabinet? as though we were actually texting each it, it was it was a whole it was a whole phase of my life and that i've also written sherlock fanfiction again it's on uh, fanfiction.net and i shall not revisit it um <laughs> but there were several situations that arose in the the text rp that wound up in that sherlock fanfiction yeah you take inspiration from everywhere. I I have friends who um, I have a friend who has like one of her best friends she met through doing um, like Sherlock text RP online. So it's it's valid. And this is like somebody she's now been friends with for years and is very close to. So, yeah, I feel fine criticizing Sherlock the show. Uh, I'm not criticizing people who were fans of Sherlock. I met a lot of good people who I still like very much through the Sherlock fandom. Uh, many of them also have now come to the conclusion that the show was bad, but uh, it's yeah. certainly, that's another thing about fan communities and like the nature of transformative works. Even if there's not that much emotional meat to the media itself, expounding on it in a collaborative way can teach you so much about yourself just in how you interpret what you're watching, how you want to talk about what you're watching, uh, what you imagine the character's motivations are, even if even if the people who actually created the media didn't think as hard about it as you're thinking about it. It's such a, a, a rich well for self-discovery, regardless of the sort of, I don't wanna, I don't wanna say objective quality, there's no such thing as objective quality to media but even if uh it ain't that deep 
the the sort of experiences that spin out of it can be very meaningful to people. Yeah, it's it's a community, it's a social experience, and I, of course, I can't think of an example right now. But you know, there, there are like very popular, highly rated shows that sort of never develop a fandom um, because to some extent, you know, fans are really looking for and crave that community and other people who just love the thing too. So if it's a show that doesn't have much of a fandom, people are less likely to join it because uh, there is that community aspect. It doesn't always correlate to how, how quote, good or bad the show is, which is fascinating. Yeah, I was listening to um, Ologies, which is a podcast I like, and they would, Allie Ward, the host, had a, a like, fan scholar a like professional on her business card it said fanthropologist but anyway <laughs> she has a degree in like fan studies fan community studies of some kind and uh she explained that properties that tend to develop the the largest and most active fan communities are ones that have a lot of negative space built in so mm. if if there's a a show that exists in a small portion of what is implied to be a very large world of some kind, like whether physically or like figuratively, that's the thing that people tend to latch onto because there's so much room to like fill in the gaps. Whereas like if something is overexplained or if it, a lot of shows like, um, like Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad had a lot of fans, but it, it was taking place in a relatively contained... It was taking place in what is functionally the real world, uh, where we know how everything works and know that everything sucks. And uh, the characters were like working in a fairly small space and one that not a lot of people had experience with. Not many people know how the world of crystal meth trafficking works so that wasn't a fan community that generated a lot of transformative works because there just wasn't a lot of room in there for people to really let their imaginations go wild whereas like something like supernatural opened a lot of doors to uh, a vast weird world that was not like the real world and of course like let's be real it, it also had two attractive white men uh, who the showrunners did a lot of queer baiting with in it, which certainly mm -hmm. had something to do with it. But besides that, like people could write their own adventures in the style of supernatural, even if they weren't like about relationships at all. You could write a supernatural adventure that would fit into the show somewhere in these long gaps where they were fighting monsters and you didn't see it on screen. That was the explanation, and it's more complicated than that, of course, but that's a good, like, early indicator of which things are going to produce a large fan community and which things aren't. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm such a world-building junkie, and I, uh, like, if I'm reading something and then the author, like, mentions offhand some fact and then doesn't explain it or follow up. I'm always like, no, I want to know, like, give, give me your in-world Wikipedia entry for this thing. I want to know, like, the nuts and bolts of how it works. And that is absolutely what fandoms and fan communities are for. You can, you can have a fan fiction that is, like, 
could almost be original fiction because it's like in completely a different corner of the same world as some other show. And maybe, maybe, maybe it's like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and like Hamlet wanders by at some point, like Harry Potter wanders by at some point, but you're over here doing your own thing with your own characters because it's such a wide world to play in. Uh, I, I like the, the just gentle reminder sprinkled in here that, uh, Shakespeare fan fiction definitely exists. I'm not in that community, <laughs> but it definitely exists. Well, isn't that public domains? Like you can do, you don't even have to worry about copyright stuff. Well, sure, but um, <laughs> it, I just didn't think on a daily basis about the fact that Shakespeare fan fiction exists. Uh, it I, does. I, I occasionally am forced to think about the fact that Bible fan fiction exists just because it was like kind of a joke on the internet for a long time. I think people like very sincerely have written Bible fan fiction, and I think a lot of trolls have written Bible fan fiction, but Bible fan fiction is certainly a thing that exists. Uh-huh. And fan fiction can get like super meta these days. Like in this current cultural moment we're living in, people make they're absolutely jokes, but people are writing um like fan fictions of personifications of the uh ever given and the Suez Canal in a relationship. <laughs> like wow, those, those are on AO3 as we the, speak. The the recording date of this podcast has now been pinned down to within about three days. Good job. Well I already listening. said this is the day after the Magnus Archives finale. So oh, that's true. It's, it's pretty clear. Oh yeah. Friday, right. March twenty sixth. The the time police are gonna come get us. They figured out. They've they've honed in on our location. No problem. Hey, I, I told you, fan studies. It, it moves fast. You gotta stay in, in the present cultural moment. <laughs> yeah, I actually I just ordered two books, and I I knew this when I ordered them, but they're from 1991 and 1992 respectively, uh, and they're like about fan communities. One of them is enterprising women, and one of them is textual poachers. And Henry Jenkins. Yeah, I'm I'm really this is what I meant at the beginning by I've accidentally sort of like it was my toe first that I dipped and then I kind of stuck my whole foot in the pool of fan academia. Uh they both arrived in the mail today and I'm very excited to read about uh like fan communities in the 80s, which obviously is going to be what a book published in the early 90s is about. It's it's gonna. Mm -hmm. I, I I'm very eager to actually like talk about one or both of them on this podcast, but that's gonna be a whole a whole other episode. They're so good. Henry Jenkins is like in his whole introduction. He talks about um, navigating being both a fan and a scholar, which is something that I'm having to uh, learn how to do as I'm now like studying my passion for my PhD. It's it's like like those people who where where their their job is also their hobby. It's kind of similar issues there. But textual poachers is a really good um like a good way of describing um people who do transformative fan works who write fan fiction. They're taking the text and like the use of the word poacher, like and this this is just me paraphrasing Jenkins, but it gets into the like the power differential between the poacher and the landowner who they're who's like land they're poaching on as they're like taking the world and characters and doing what they will with it. Um, and then it also gets into the questionable legality of 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 like IP and copyright and fan fiction stuff because poaching obviously illegal. So I think textual poachers is a very apt metaphor, but. It's 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 a really good book. I'm excited for you to read it. 
Yeah, I was a little bit uh, like leery of it at first because the word poachers has such a negative connotation. I was like, oh no, this guy's just going to be dunking on fan communities the whole time. I still was interested in reading it because I'm mm-hmm. sort of interested in like the the anti-ethos as well. I'm interested in people like Anne Rice who are extremely anti-transformative works. So uh, I was I looked into it even with that suspicion, but all I looked on Goodreads, all of the comments are like, no, this is really thoughtful and really insightful, and it's a really like uh, positive look at like fan communities, and it's oh, yeah. smart and also not patronizing. So yeah, I'm mm-hmm. I'm very excited to read both of them. I was never involved in Star Trek in any way, so I would really love to have somebody come on and talk about like the early Star Trek fandom, like the early, early Star Trek fandom in like the seventies or what have you. But that's, that's like I said, a whole other thing. So we'll see if I can get someone to do that. I understand the fear when the title is that, but yeah, I promise you Henry Jenkins is a fan. This is like, it's, it's, it's an academic portrayal, but it's a loving portrayal of fandom. And because I still have my PowerPoint up, there's one quote in it that is really, really excellent. And I just want to read it real quick, which is, um, fan fiction is a way of the culture repairing the damage done in a system where contemporary myths are owned by corporations instead of owned by the folk. Henry Jenkins. Uh, thesis statement (laughs) that's that's it that's that's everything you need to know that's we don't need to do this podcast anymore that's how it oh we got to talk about fan fiction and capitalism we got so much stuff to talk about i got so i could go on forever but well yeah i'm not gonna keep you all night (laughs) (laughs) yeah there is a there there is a time difference (laughs) it is uh, like 9 30 here but this is wonderful thank you thank you so much one episode wonder Henry Jenkins can say it all. <laughs> uh, this was a ton of fun. Uh, I'm, I feel informed. I feel invigorated. I feel excited to keep doing this podcast. Thank you for like sharing all of your extremely insightful perspective, Emma. This has been a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I think we can come to the conclusion that fan fiction is good, actually. Yeah, that's the sign-off. It's the title and the intro and the sign-off. Fan fiction is good, actually. I don't think we need to convince anybody. I assume if you're listening, you already think that or are willing to be convinced. But, um, yeah, we won't stop. So, too bad. Fan Fiction is Good, actually, is part of Where They May Radio, a small family of podcasters just doing our best. You can keep up with Fan Fiction is Good, actually, on Twitter at fanficisgoodpod, and you can reach Evan via email at fanficisgood at gmail.com. For bonus content, including bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash wtmradio. Where They May Radio.